The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 29 of the Lord's Supper, Paragraph 1. Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood, called the Lord's Supper, to be observed in his church unto the end of the world, for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself and his death, the sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 84 of This We Confess. Today we begin our look at chapter 29 of our confession, which considers the Lord's Supper. And the Westminster Divines spent three chapters on the sacraments, with chapter 27 speaking about the sacraments generally, and then chapter 28 speaking about baptism specifically. And so in chapter 29, the Lord's Supper receives the same treatment over eight paragraphs. The Westminster Divines begin by reminding us that it was Christ himself who instituted the Lord's Supper. Whenever we gather around the table, it isn't to go through the motions in some church-designed and man-centred activity. Instead, we come to the table which belongs to Christ. We come to a meal instituted by Jesus himself. Paul makes this very point in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23 onwards. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in Matthew 26, verse 26 onwards, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so the Lord's Supper was Christ's idea. 
his gift to his church, a meal that would be to the church after Calvary what the Passover meal was to the church before Calvary. And according to the Westminster Divines, the supper was to be a sacrament of Christ's body and his blood. The Divines will later make clear that as Reformed Christians, we do not believe that the bread and the wine actually turn into the body and blood of Jesus. But nevertheless, the sacrament is one of the body and blood of Christ. Jesus chose the bread and the wine for a reason. The elements used make the word visible, and they tangibly remind us of the reality of Christ's sacrifice. As we continue into this paragraph, we remember that the sacraments are for the church alone. The Lord's Supper is not a magic trick or a good luck charm to be used out there by anyone. It is only to be used and observed by the church of Jesus Christ until our Lord's return. Paul explains why in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 16 to 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, he writes, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Jesus? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So the one body, the church, comes to the table and participates in the body and blood of Christ. And we cannot and should not come to the Lord's table if we have no regard for Jesus. If we haven't received him by faith, then we have no business at his meal. The supper is to be observed within the church until the end of the age. And when Christ returns, the supper will be no longer necessary, because the elements of bread and wine will be made redundant by the actual physical body of Christ. We will be with him, body and soul, in paradise. With that underlined, the Westminster Divines give us five reasons for the Lord's Supper. Firstly, they say that the Supper is for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death. So it is right to say that the Supper is a reminder. Now, it is not just a reminder. It is not an empty ritual which occasionally wakes us up. There is much more to it than that. But it is certainly a reminder. Every single time we come to the Lord's table, we are confronted by the reality of Christ's sacrifice. We remember that he was sinless and spotless, and yet for our sake, he became sin and died at Calvary. It was there that he was beaten and mocked and scorned, and he became a curse for us as he hung upon the tree. We can never have too much of the gospel, and as Christians we should delight in hearing the gospel preached, and we should desire to be at the table every single time it is set. The supper reminds us of what Christ has done. And we need this constantly, because like little magpies, we are so often delighted by bright and shiny new things, and we quickly forget the substance of our faith. The supper reminds us of Christ's sacrifice. And secondly, the Westminster Divines say that the supper is for the sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers. We again quote the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 
The cup is one of blessing for God's people. The supper does not save us, and no reformed minister will ever say, eat and drink and be saved. I suspect, tragically, that some do believe this to be the case, and some come to the table foolishly thinking that attendance on a rare occasion at the Lord's table somehow will change their status in the sight of Almighty God. It does not. The supper is not a means of salvation, but rather the supper is a means of grace. Thomas Watson once called the Lord's Supper a visible sermon. And so when we come to the table, the benefits of Christ's work are sealed in our hearts. The supper encourages us, and it assures us that by faith in Jesus, we are welcome guests at Christ's table. And because we have repented and believed the gospel, we are now welcome to eat and drink and remember and be assured that Christ is for us. The supper seals all the benefits of the gospel in the hearts of true believers. Thirdly, the Westminster Divines say that in the supper, Christians receive their spiritual nourishment and growth in him. Many of you will have a grandmother who often declared you to be much too skinny before filling you up with home baking and pots of Irish stew. Well, no one will ever get fat by coming to the Lord's table every week. We receive just a small taste of wine and just a small morsel of bread. But the supper wasn't designed to fill our bellies, but rather our souls. As we eat and drink, we receive spiritual nourishment. We come with tired and weary souls, and we receive spiritual refreshments. When we eat and drink and remember the gospel and all the multitude of benefits that are found in Christ, the supper nourishes us and grows us up in Jesus. Fourthly, the supper also challenges us as we leave the table and return to our lives. The Westminster Divines say in paragraph 1 that the supper encourages Christians in their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him. In other words, the supper should send us home full of the gospel and full of Christ so that we consider our own ways. The supper encourages us to open our Bibles and to fall on our knees in prayer. The supper urges us towards evangelism. The supper calls us to serve Christ at the school gate and in the conference hall and in the business meeting. And just as we feel the benefits of a good meal long after we have left the table, so too after the best meal, which is the Lord's Supper, we go and we consider our ways and our lives and our service to Christ the King. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 21, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we are reminded that we belong to Christ, body and soul, in life and in death. And we are reminded that regardless of all the things in this world which catch our attention and gaze, nothing compares to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And we are to live for him and we are to serve him in all our ways. Fifthly and finally, the supper is, according to the divines, a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. We sometimes refer to the Lord's Supper as communion, 
For at the table we receive clear and visible evidence that we belong to Jesus, or we have communion with him. If it were not so, how could Paul speak of our participation in the body and blood of Christ? Again, we read 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, well worth reading and well worth remembering. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul speaks in this way, because it is true. To all who have received Christ, who have believed in his name, he gives them the right to be called children of God. And that is exactly what we are. Just as children have a place at their parents' table, so Christians have a sweet communion with Christ at his table. He is for us. And as we struggle through this harlot world, we feast on his body and his blood, and we are strengthened for the fight of faith which lies before us. But even though the Westminster Confession is now many, many years old, the Westminster divines still speak into our day and age, especially against the individualism of our day, where we like to say, my faith is all about just me and Jesus. The supper shows us our communion with Christ, but it also shows us and reminds us of our communion with each other. As you come to the table, it is not a solo pursuit. It is not an individualistic exercise. It is a bond and pledge of your membership of the body of Christ and how you belong to your fellow Christians. How then can we come to or leave the table with grudges still burning in our hearts? How can we come or leave the table with gossip about our brethren on our lips? My brothers and sisters, we cannot, we should not, the supper shows us that we are part of Christ's mystical body. That is, we are part of his bride, the church. There is only one body. There is one bride. There is one church. And it is, as Paul states in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so, my brothers and sisters, the next time you go to the table, may you not treat it like you're going to the cinema to be entertained. May it not be an individualistic moment between you and the Lord. May you consider the fact that Christ died not just for you, but for his people, for his bride, of which by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are one constituent part. And so today we begin our look at chapter 29 of the Lord's Supper. And in this one beautiful, fulsome paragraph, the Westminster Divines show us the beauty and the gravity of the Lord's Supper, instituted by Christ himself for the benefit of his precious bride. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood.
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As always today, here are some questions for you to consider. Question 1. According to the Westminster Divines, who instituted the Lord's Supper? And support your answer with a reference to Scripture. Question 2. Why will the supper not be necessary after the end of the age? Question 3. How many reasons do the Westminster Divines give for the supper? How many can you name and explain? Question 4. The benefits of a good meal are felt long after we leave the table. In what way does the supper challenge us, even when we have gone home? And question five. How does the supper speak against the individualism of the modern age? That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn. And until next time, this we confess. (laughs) 